morning, everybody. Uh, Today's scripture reading is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. And if you'd please stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." You may be seated. Thank you, Dylan. Well, thank you, Brian, elders. There's not much that gets by us. That definitely got by me. Before I go, I'd like to go in prayer. I have been longing for Romans 12. Um, Primarily over the last, I think, two years, I think that uh, our society has definitely been challenged. I think the church has been challenged. Learning how to respond in worship in light of the situations that we face. And I don't think this is just something that we have just struggled with in the last two years. I think every generation, when it comes to rightly understanding the word of God, responding rightly in worship. And, and so I've longed to go through Romans 12, and if you just allow me, I I feel like um, we need to sit in Romans 12 for a while. And so for the next two months, we are going to labor together patiently through these things. We have labored, no doubt, for a year in the doctrines of God, Romans chapter 1 through 11. It has been good for me. I have felt myself grow in understanding who God is, Uh, but like every generation, every Christian, as they come to realize who Christ is and how it relates to one another and ourselves, I think this is where the rubber hits the road, and I pray that for us as a people that we could come to see that the things at which God calls us to is a joyous response and that it is genuine worship, and so with that, I We as the elders have been praying for you regularly. It's our desire that we see you respond in your workplace, in your schools, in your families, in your love towards the beloved in a way that would honor Christ. Paul makes a plea here for the church, the body of Christ, to respond in worship. But we also, and I think can acknowledge with Paul, that while he pleads, it's the Lord who makes it take place, that the heart of worship happens with the individual. 
And so my plea to you over the next two months is, is that you would pray with me for yourself primarily, is that as you consider the plea of God to respond and worship, that God would create within your own heart an attitude of worship. And that you would allow us to uh, see the genuine worth that's being revealed here in Romans chapter 12. I think, man, I believe that our generation clings or longs for these things in this chapter. They long for it and yet can't find it. We have the means to do it. The Holy Spirit, which calls us to these things to delight in them. And I pray that we would delight in them as we go through them. So with that said, would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray, yeah, as Paul pleased to the church in Rome and to the churches throughout every time of history, that the heart of worship is one that you have created through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the servanthood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the will of your desire to see those who were once your enemies, godless, those who acted with depraved minds, be so transformed in the heart that they would be so concerned about how they would respond in living for you in every facet of their life. And that while we recognize that worship is so commonly understood as singing a song, which it is, that we would become such a people that would recognize that worship encompasses just every aspect, every aspect of our life, whether it be a husband or a wife, a child, whether it be a young adult, a high schooler, there is something that we ought to recognize that's delightful in what you've done for us in responding with total submission in worship, Lord. And I pray that we would come to know the joy that's being revealed here. For we know as we can read it, we recognize that we plead with you that you would make it happen, transform our hearts to live in such a way. For I believe there is no other greater way to live in this matter, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the reasons why I think I feel that these words are crucial As I have grown up in the state of Washington and now have lived here in Tri-Cities over the last eight years, I've noticed that it's common, even for Christians, and I'm primarily speaking for Christians, to keep one another at a, like a hands distant. Um, We're prone to want to have relationships, but at times there's this hesitance in each enough, and I'm including myself in this, to want to not have our minds changed by one another. We want to keep each other so close, but not too close. And I think that as we come through the last two years, even in the mindset of COVID, I think things have been even pushed even further, where we are further distancing ourselves from one another. Now I say that recognizing that uh, many of those attempts have been in protecting one another. But I think if we're not careful, that we will find ourselves becoming more distant to one another in these things, as Paul comes to call us to respond in worship. Uh, When I throw out the word worship, as Adam had spoke to us about last week, that God is, in light of what God has called us to do, that he then asks in response a life of worship. And uh, what I'd like to do is recognize just in the front end of this 
chapter is to recognize that what Paul's about to put before us is not his opinions, nor is it is like his, here are 12 practical reasons or ways that you can respond to the theology which God has given us in Christ. He's not giving to us some ideas to pick and choose which ones should be applied. And this is why I find it interesting is that sometimes we can read portions of scriptures and be selective in how we respond to them. But Paul, when he writes these words, writes with a humble, heavy hand. If you look with me once again at Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he humbly puts before the church his authority. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, this is Paul's phrasing where he humbly reminds them of who he is. Granted, Paul will identify himself with his fellow beloved as a Christian who has been saved by the grace of God, but not like this. This here is humbly putting himself before them, reminding them that he is an apostle. You are familiar with the term, I hope. The term apostle has been used and is used throughout the entire Old, or excuse me, the New Testament. Generally, I would refer to it as the the big A, apostle. There are references throughout the scriptures where we have apostle in the little a position. Our translations try to help us understand this situation and that at times when Paul uses the term apostle, it's often translated when not referring to the apostles as messenger. You can see this in Philippians 2.25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. It's apostle, but in the sense of one who sends out into the world. When Brandon and Lisa was commissioned by the IMB or when we support Ryan in Catania, These are individuals that the church has recognized as being sent out among them to serve for the greater gospel around the world. Or even in local efforts, the church identifies a gift and sends them out as messengers of the stewardship of Christ and minister to my need. But when Paul emphasizes in chapter 12, verse 3, for through the grace given to me, he's pointing not back to this idea of messenger, but to this idea of apostle. And it's often used, Peter uses it, and in, all, in his letters, notice with me in 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This carries authority, and we'll come to see it carries the idea, if you refuse the teaching of Peter, you therefore refuse the teaching of Christ, is the idea. 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul does the same thing in this own letter of Romans. He says in the very beginning, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart from the gospel of, or gospel of God. So remember, when we, I wanted to make this emphasis important because what I'm trying to do here is just to show in the very beginning a part of Romans 12, Paul's not giving options here. He's not trying to say here are some selective ways that you can respond to the theology of God. No, he's, he's speaking with big A, apostleship. This apostleship has been granted to him from Christ himself. Remember at his conversion, Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. 
the Lord said to him, go. He's talking to Ananias, who scared up Paul. Right reason, Paul has been really difficult with the Christians, but at his conversion, Ananias, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. If we remember, this is important, our faith is built upon apostolic teaching. So when we read the Gospels, we even see the high position and priority of the apostles, that when they speak, to refuse the teaching of apostle is to refuse Christ himself. And so in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, he says, Christ, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him, the Father who has sent me. Why do I labor on with all of this? Well, when Paul says, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone, he's placing before them his apostolic authority. What I'm about to say is the very definition of what worship looks like. And this is how you respond, understanding the theology of God that I have labored on for 11 chapters to respond in worship. So tempting as myself to look at these words and say, well, I'll pick and choose. No, he's going to lay out here what is worship with apostolic authority. He's not giving the reader the chance to select what he wants to do. This is worship. And he places his authority right before them. And this is how we've seen the church to always grow in, in throughout the New Testament. We're based upon this apostolic authority. Uh, just let me remind you again, Acts 2, 42. When the church was sparked, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And Paul will even remind them once again at the end, Romans 15, 15 through 16. It's just this humble way of saying, I'm not talking as just a normal Christian anymore. I'm talking with this, with apostolic authority, humbly. But I have written to you very boldly, to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace. What grace has been given to him? This grace this call of apostolic authority to teach the Gentiles that was given me from God, to be a minister to Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, minister as a priest, the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So why, why do I labor here? And I think I've already said this. When Paul writes, for through the grace given to me, Based on the apostolic position which Christ has given me, I say to everyone. And this is important. To refuse this is to refuse Christ. That's the point. This is what worship is. This is how we respond rightly to what we know about God theologically. I stressed it two weeks ago. I may have said it abundantly. God cares how you think. He cares how, he thinks about, how we think about Him. And Paul's going to take that idea, God cares how we think about him, and he's going to flip it and remind us that God cares how we think towards the beloved. The first application 
or the first call of worship that Paul puts before the reader is not in praise, which is which he's done in chapter 12 at the end of it, but the means by which we, we put rubber to the ground towards one another is in the application of how we love one another in Christ, which is our point too. So if God cares how we think, the first means of application we find in chapter 12 is that there's a right response of how we think towards one another. Notice with me in chapter, or chapter 12, verse 3, how many times he uses the word think. Three times. For through the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think once more highly of himself than he ought to think, but two, to think. What's he want us to do? Think. <laughs> we worship God when we think rightly towards one another. And that is worship. And he calls the beloved to think as so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So casual we take our theology. If we take our theology casually, it will also impact how we think in practice and impact the way we worship So it matters how we think about God because if we get that messed up, it's going to change the way that we think in worship. And those two things are necessary so that when we respond in worship towards one another, we don't fall prey to the one thing that he wants us to be careful of, fall prey to pride. And this one I think is very convicting to myself if you allow me just look at verse 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Initially, I think it's common and normal to recognize or to think that one body applies to the local church. It's probably sometime I've held to that tradition as well. But Paul will stress here as well as elsewhere, there is only one body of Christ. So reliance is not the body of Christ, is a member of the body of Christ. In fact, if you allow me, Ephesians 4 through 6 emphasizes this. This will change the way, reliance, how we think of other local churches and how we think about them. And right thinking is worship. And if there is many members in the body, one body of Christ, it'll change the way we think. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body. And one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all and in all. God being gracious towards his body. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, he goes on to say, to emphasize, it's so easy, so easy to think. Reliance is the body of Christ. No, we're a member of the body of Christ because there is one body. And he gave us some as apostles, not just reliance, 
the body. And some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We live in a world which is so commercially driven. Numbers win. Numbers mean success. But God's grace given towards his body is quite diverse. And the measure by which a church recognizes its individual responsibility, they are a member of the body. But just because one member of a local body is smaller or bigger than the other doesn't mean that one is less or more valuable. This is how we think. And when we think rightly, then we're able to think appreciatively of those around us who gather in churches. This, I recognize even when we moved here as a church plant, was common thinking. Why do we need more churches here? There's more churches here. And the mindset is that's new competition. And the reality is, is as we're prone to think this way, that if we're not careful then we become those who oppose right thinking and rebel in worship. So first off, Paul says, do not think more highly of yourself, ought to think, don't let pride take place. And this very initial emphasis, he's writing to the church of Rome, reminding them of how they think towards one another, recognizing that pride might take place. Christians actually think differently that when you have churches in a local community that these are grace-given opportunities to the society around them, not just to the community but to themselves as well. And God needs small churches and large communities. And But who grows those churches? God does. And so through the right thinking, we learn to think towards one another rightly. So, think to have sound judgment. Or another way to think of sound judgment in verse 3, soberly. Christians are not addicted or uh, alcoholic or we have reasonable understanding with the situations locally and towards one another within the body of Christ. And we fight against pride. Quite frankly, we know as we have labored on for 11 chapters, the early church in Rome had its problems. Both Jews and Gentiles did not get along, nor did they like each other. Jews were committed to their rich heritage in which God has preserved them. He's the one that made them into their ethnicity. He's the one who made them and bore them through a barren womb. He was the one who sustained them. Gentiles were the pagan, lawless idolaters. And all of a sudden, because of Christ, they are going to church together. You can find in Rome, Romans, the conflict that exists between Jews and Gentiles. But if you went across the sea and you went to Corinth, you'll find that they had issues as well. If you go to Syria, Germany, Spain, Uganda, or Washington, or Tri-Cities locally, every church has its issues. 
And because of that, because we're sinners, because we're saved by grace, and we come through those doors with baggage, Paul reminds us, think soberly, with sound judgment towards one another. Let me remind you, Reliance. Remind myself. Do you remember who you once were? Right thinking of God. You were wretched. And that all are under sin. Doesn't matter what family you came from or what heritage you had or what opportunities God has provided you. All are under sin. Fall short of the glory of God. Yet, Yet, even in spite of your rebellion, at the right time, God helped those who were helpless. And the right time, in Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. And we walk through those doors and we gather as a people together, recognizing that this is something that has occurred only by the grace of God, that we are what we are. And that God reserves the right to be gracious towards those he desires to be gracious and he's been gracious to us. And so we think with sound judgment. You probably missed it, but it should cause us some time here to consider. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself. You could see it. The Jew, I know who God is. I know how he's worked historically. The poor Gentile who's just come to realize who God is. The pastor gets into the front of the the congregation, he says, open your Bibles to Matthew. Clearly, this is a couple hundred years later when they get the scriptures available for all. But the Jew or those who were religious, they could find their book, the book of Matthew, quite quickly. If you've ever had any time to enjoy the young in Christ, Matthew is hard to find if you don't know where it's at. And those opportunities, isn't it nice to know that you are so far along in your spiritual journey and someone can't even find Matthew? And that attitude of pride comes to the point where you might actually think that you're better than someone else. This is just a minor example. We recognize we do this with many things. And we look down upon those who are in the beginning of their Christian walk, and we begin to compare those who are seasoned in their walk. And in that conflict, there's an opportunity to take place where pride can take place in the church. And Paul says, Think soberly. Have sound mind or sound judgment. How is one saved? By the grace of God. But he goes on to say, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So if we are saved by grace, Paul goes on to remind us, if it's God who saves us, Who is it that grows us into his image? Who sanctifies us? It is by the gracious work of God. And there are some people, I remember listening to Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorites growing up, and he admitted that he used to press his wife to grow faster in her spiritual walk. And he realized at some point that he was supposed to be encouraging her, not pressuring her, and it was God who graciously grew his wife in Christ. And he was to come along as one of sound mind. And through the grace that he's experienced to be gracious with his wife as she learns. 
And so we come into this fellowship with all these different situations that we come in life and we make assumptions of how others should act. And some of those are right, no doubt. But then the ways that we correct one another is not rooted in a realization or understanding that it's God who calls them as good. Excuse me, granted them this measure of faith to grow in that regard. And so we say, he should be more patient. Well, the opportunity has arised. So let's be gracious as they learn this patience rather than demanding it. And when that takes place, you have worship. Isn't it helpful to at least admit We are all at different parts of our spiritual journey. Is that not helpful? And when we admit that, that is the foundation where worship can take place as we acknowledge, I'm still trying to figure this out. But rather, and I am prone to this, even when I come before behind the pulpit, I have to be right. But if I'm not careful, that's not even gracious, even for me. And that there is a sense that pastors should be allowed to grow too and learn to understand the Scriptures and apply. And that in itself is worship, is to understand that we're all growing. Romans 14.1, Paul starts that chapter with that reality known and remind, needed to remind the church. Now accept the one who is weak of faith. So that ought to be the way that we look towards one another. Now, just because they're not doing what we think they should be doing doesn't mean, oh, they're just weak in faith. We need to be patient with them. But I do think, isn't it by God's grace that we learn that there's this reality in the church that when God brings people in, we're all at different parts of the spiritual journey. And because of that, there should be this basic acknowledgement of being gracious towards one another rather than demanding them to come at our own expectation where they should be, but rather call upon the Lord to grow one another in the image of Christ because it's Him who is allotted to each a measure of faith. Chapter 12, verse 3, will change the way you think about church. It'll change the way you think about church. Because if it's true that we're supposed to be gracious towards one another because God has been gracious towards us, let's go to point three, our convictional response. That we recognize it's God who makes us to whom he wants us to be in Christ Jesus. And so that means we recognize the practices in which Paul's going to say, be devoted in prayer. Lord, please, please save their marriage. Not because we, our marriage is better than theirs and we're in a good... No, because we acknowledge that it's God who humbles the heart and allows the heart to have a place of reconciliation and forgiveness. And it's God by His Spirit who brings about those things. And when we do these things, it brings about worship. And we call upon Him who does this. And in hopes, this leads the congregation, the members of the body, 
to be a community of grace rather than a community of judgment. You can recognize it in the world today that it um, promotes the idea of tolerance as its greatest aim. But even in that regard, it has within it this idea of not being able to get interactive with one another because you only tolerate one another. And at some point, when the toleration gets too far, you sever the relationship. Within the church, what God has offered in Christ is a community of grace, sound understanding, patient endurance towards one another. And when the church clings on to it, that's worship. So it's been asked of me, can you be a Christian and not participate in the assembly of God? Paul would say, you can't worship because you don't have any opportunity to be patient, to think soberly of the others around you. And if you don't have the opportunity to express that, you are hindered by your ability to be one who responds in worship in light of recognizing that you've been saved by grace, they've been saved by grace, all of us by grace. And through that, the patience of God gets worked out within the community of Christ. And as a result of that, it becomes worship. If, if you're like me, I study history. And when I study history, one of my, probably for the last two years, for some reason, I don't know what it is, but World War II has been the, the, the series or season that I've studied. And if I'm not careful, as I place myself in Germany, I'll ask the question, what if I was a pastor in Germany when Hitler was gathering the millions? What would I have done would I have participated? Or would I have joined the confessing church and humbly and faithfully pressed against it? That's what I hope I would have done, but here's the reality of what I have learned in Romans 11, for 1 through 11. Only by the grace of God I would do that. For sin has covered all humanity. And we are all under sin, and we exchange the glories of God for our own wisdom. You don't have to look through the tunnel of history to find a lot of sin. It's everywhere. And the covering of sin has blinded the eyes of everyone. And by gracious God's gracious call, while we were still enemies of God, even in the time of Germany, God called out men and women, out of that regime to himself, a remnant in which he saved, and he transformed for himself. That only happened because of the grace of God. And if we understand that, we recognize even in our own current position, we tend to elevate this progressive idea that we're less under the umbrella of sin. But it's not true. We don't have to look very far that even still to this day, our world is under sin. And by the grace of God, right thinking, God called us, drew us out 
for himself. And we have a sober understanding of how that relates for ourselves and for one another. 2 Corinthians 4.4, as a light of understanding that reality, we understand the world outside of the community of God, in whose case the God of this world has blinded, which is Satan, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, even right thinking as we relate our worship towards one another soberly, that it's God who allots the measure of faith as we grow in Christ, because it's God who builds up his church, but it also helps us to understand the world outside of us. And so often, and I have to admit this too, as we talk about the realities of sin, it often sometimes comes across as not very gracious. It comes across as judgmental, And we speak in such a way that it's not inviting. And the gospel is inviting. World, the world is offering you tolerance. The gospel is offering you grace. The freedom to grow in the love of Christ with sober men and women who recognize that we're not all perfect, but we're trying to respond by the Spirit in love towards one another, towards the beloved, and we do that graciously. That's worship. That's what our society is longing for. It hungers for. It can acknowledge and it knows sin is there. They see its corruption. But the means to get out is is not gracious. The church has something to offer, but it can't offer it if it can't do it itself. And so that's why I plead. If it is God who allots to each measure of faith this heart of worship, where we're all at different seasons of life, may that it take place that we will pray, make our hearts worship. Because when it takes place, then the world sees it. And they know Christ's disciple as a result of their love towards one another. Out of the heart of worship. And they say, that's, that's super attractive. And in response of it, we recognize, God, there's a God of this world that's blinded them. They can't see. So who's the one who lifts it? It's God. There's a gracious, we think rightly. Christians think differently. We think otherworldly. And when we think rightly, it leads to gracious worship. So I want to end with this. If you were to determine your quality of worship by the means by which you know one another, what would that be? Paul's going to go on to labor on that the means by which you worship as a result of union and unity and sober thinking with one another. If you could determine the quality of your worship by how you relate to your beloved, this is what we ought to think, Reliance. This is, how we, this is how we convictionally respond to the Word of God together. Where are we at? Are we gracious? 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves who loves is born of God and knows God. 
right thinking of God leads to right thinking of him, which results in right thinking towards one another. It's not based on income. It's not based on color. It's not based on where you live. It's based on grace. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's a gracious love. But this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right thinking of God leads to right thinking of the beloved. And worship takes place when you see the opportunity in one another to love one another. And you'll find, even as you get close to my family, we have issues. And I would play, pray, as we will for you, that you would be gracious towards us. I have loved, thank you, for the elders who are gracious even towards me, my family. And I pray that that would take place as well in every small group within our community. Yep, you'll sit in a small group and somebody's going to say something and go, hmm, that ain't right. Do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Be sober in your correction. Be like Quill and Priscilla. Think honorably and graciously correct. First John 4, 19 through 21, I'll end with this. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, here's the warning. There is a way of thinking that's rebellious to Christ. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Reliance, there is going to be much that we have to consider in this chapter. But it, only, but it starts with right thinking of one another. Each of us has been given a measure of grace from God. God saves us, he sanctifies us, and we come alongside each other graciously. Encouraging, sometimes appealing, sometimes, yes, confronting, sometimes reconciling, but let us do it with sound judgment and graciously live this out in an act of worship. And may God, if he so desires, take that worship and share it to the world, not for our benefit, but for his glory. Let's pray.